This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Welcome to this week's Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Adam Weed. I'm joined by David Emmett, and we are powered, fueled, and presented by Renthal Street Grips. From comfort to durability to grip diameter options, Renthal Streets have a grip for everyone. David, have you got any Renthal Street Grips on your BMW yet? I mean, we're going to have to get this bike upgraded a little bit. Yeah, I, I do not have Renthal Street Grips on there. I do wish I'd had them on my previous bike, though, because the um, uh, the grips on my old bike had almost uh, worn through, and I ended up uh, putting some some of those foam ones on um, because they're actually difficult to get off when they are heated. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, I mean, you know, I've only got fifteen hundred k's on the bike so far, so uh, I haven't I haven't had time to wear them out. Yeah, so we're going to have to definitely talk to Mr. David Kaiser over there at Renthal uh, to send some stuff over. We're in need, David. So um, let's, um, the other David, that is. So let's have a look through the product catalogue. And of course, Fly Racing have been backing us for a while now. So thanks to the guys at Fly. I'm not wearing my Fly t-shirt at the moment, but as soon as we're just doing audio this week, it doesn't really matter. Um, Fly also do some fantastic products through the street range from helmets to jackets, gloves. There's loads of stuff there. They're not just famous in off-road. Uh, yeah, I've actually been using the, um, the I think, the brawler gloves. Um, and I'm really quite impressed. Quality is very good. Uh, also, the T-shirts they, they sent us. Um, and I'm not just saying this because they sent it to us. The quality is really exceptional. It is very, very good. So um, uh, I've even, in the cold winter nights, I was even sleeping in my hoodie because it was so much, it, it, it was really, really warm. So um, uh, yes, I've, um, it's been an extremely fruitful relationship so far. There you go. Companies and brands. You can't get a better endorsement than going to bed with David Emmett on the Paddock Pass <laughs> podcast. So feel free to send us some more stuff. Now, I would introduce Steve English and Neil Morrison, but sadly I can't. Steve's uh, recovering from a bout of COVID, but um, he's almost there. Sadly can't join us on the call today. And Neil Morrison is currently stuck in some immigration queue or customs queue, maybe even security. I'm not too sure. Knowing Neil, it probably is security in Madrid airport on his way to Argentina. David and I, we are not going to Argentina, but we are going to Austin. Uh, it made a little sense for us to spend, um, you know, two weeks on another continent. But Neil will be there. Of course, uh, you know, he's the voice of Moto2 and Moto3 free practice on the live comms. Uh, we'll hope to catch up with him for the Paddock Pass podcast note show. Join us there. All those recordings are on Patreon where we'll be basically dissecting what we've heard from the riders, from the track, um, from people like Neil or on the ground, right from the MotoGP Grand Prix, Friday to basically Sunday evening, everything we know. So join us there on Patreon if you haven't done already. Today, though, we're going to talk a little bit about Argentina, uh, round three of the series, and basically MotoGP globe hop hopping, going from Asia all the way through to South America. Uh, and Dave, I found out that Argentina, even just reading a couple of lines, um, you know, you always learn something new. I mean, they've been going to, you know, Termas de Rio Hondo for nearly 10 years now, uh, since 2014. But uh, the Argentine Grand Prix in 1961 was apparently the first ever non-European Grand Prix in the World Championship, which I didn't really know. You wouldn't think that would be the uh, the first place that Grand Prix racing would bounce out of Europe. Uh, well, yeah, but I mean, I think there was quite a strong uh, sort of culture of racing uh, back there uh, in the time. Obviously, there were a lot of European uh, immigrants, uh, strong ties with, uh, with Spain, obviously, and Spain has also always been um uh, a strong racing uh, com uh, 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 country even 
in the before times, even sort of, you know, before the resurgence after Angel Nieto, it was still a very popular sort of sport uh, there. So, um, yeah, I mean, it is quite surprising that Argentina would be the first one. You would have thought it would have been somewhere a little bit closer uh, closer to home. But, uh, um, yes, that is, that's, that's quite interesting. Who won? Oh, good shout. I didn't look that far. 1961 right, okay. goodness 1961 uh, let me right okay i've got i've got me big red book too early for Halewood. too early for Halewood. um goodness it would be in the 500s then actually i don't even know if it was a 500 race it could have been another category uh let's have a look uh, uh nations oh, while you're thumbing through that i will mention you know as well on the podcast as david has this um book that you know is essential basically for any anybody following road racing not just media but the details the results and the statistics of the championship going back to 1949 we commonly refer to it as the red bible um fantastic archive of all the information related to to motor gp have you have you found it yet dave i have it, the, the winner of the 500 cc argentinian grand prix in uh in buenos aires in 1961 was jay kissling who was an argentinian uh, riding a matchless um in one hour and 39 minutes and six seconds at an average speed of 123 kilometers an hour would we want to watch a Grand Prix for a hundred and you know thirty nine minutes these days? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I mean, it was a completely different sport at the time. It was, it really was, um, a much more of an endurance sport sort of thing. And it was, uh, you know, the uh, matchless Norton, 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 Norton um, uh, were the results. So it was all single cylinder four strokes. And the venue? I mean, was it a street circuit? I think it was just outside Buenos Aires. I I don't know that uh, the, the the red book does not uh, d- does not tell me that I'd I'd have to sort of do proper research about that. You've uh, you've embarrassed oh, well, me. We're now. just ex- <laughs> we're just extolling the virtues of the red book, and now we've been uh, left well in trouble about the venue. Well, the last time MotoGP went there, of course, Dave was two thousand and nineteen. It's been two years because of the pandemic, and um, interestingly. All three riders on the podium that day, we will not see this time, you know, in Termas. Uh, Mark Marquez was the winner that day. Of course, Mark, you know, still suffering with his problem as a result of con- his concussion after that huge crash in Indonesia nearly two weeks ago. Valentino Rossi was second on the podium and Andrea De Vizioso was third. So Dovi, yes, yeah, we are going to see him. But uh, the first two, uh, not going to be in action for this uh, resumption of Grand Prix duties in Argentina. Actually, it's a bit of a common theme. So I was looking through the results of the last Grand Prix there. And in Moto2, um, Lorenzo Baldassari was the winner ahead of Remy Gardner and um, Alex Marquez. So all three of those riders not in Moto2 anymore. And then in Moto3, Jaume Masia uh, taking the win ahead of Darren Binder and Tony Arbolino. So two of those riders also not in Moto3 anymore. So the results, I think, you know, this coming weekend could be, you know, certainly a variation on the form book for Termas. Uh, well, yes. I mean, especially uh, Mark Marquez has got a very strong uh, form there. Uh, the Yamahas have also got a, a, a good form there. I think Vinales has won there. Uh, Valentina Rossi's won there. Um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure about uh, Jorge Lorenzo, but um, uh, the, the Yamahas have traditionally been quite strong there. Uh, and the Hondas have been strong there as well, but obviously it's a completely different bike because Kurt Kurzweil won there, uh, won there as well. So uh, it's going to be it's going to be very very interesting to see how it all turns out. Dave, uh, Thomas is 
one of those events where we can see the enthusiasm of the fans is very high. I mean, traditionally, you know, South Americans are always crazy for their MotoGP, which is, is, is good to see. But then it's not the most popular event on the MotoGP calendar, is it? What, why is that? Uh, well, similar to Mandalika, it's absolutely in the middle of nowhere. It's extremely difficult to get to. Uh, it's pretty much the only big event at the circuit. And so um, there is a huge amount of prowse, uh, price gouging goes on. Um, uh, hotels are outrageously expensive. Hire cars are outrageously expensive because all of this infrastructure is just not there. Um, they set the racetrack up hoping to attract more sort of uh, uh, tourists into the region. And I think um, the region it, it, it is quite an attractive sort of a, a, a region. And where the circuit is right next to the lake is quite, uh, is quite pretty as well. But, um, it, you know, it, it hasn't really happened. It, it's there for... Political reasons. It was brought there by the governor of the uh, of the of the local province, um, and so yeah, th those are all th those are all factors which you know make it more make it more difficult. Um, it's I, I think Dorna. Well, I think everyone would like a race much closer to one of the you know properly large cities uh, closer to Buenos Aires um obviously there's been lots of talk about going to Brazil and and Rio de Janeiro um uh, there's talk about going to Chile to Chile as well um so yeah it it's one of those things where there's just not really the facilities to support a MotoGP race and the, the MotoGP race is seen as the you know the, the the main as a chance for everyone in the local area to make an absolute fortune um when uh when everyone is uh, it, when it comes to town what's your opinion on the track itself i always thought it was you know pretty good i mean it's a flat it's it's kind of featureless there's nothing remarkable about it but then the races there we've seen in the past have always had some bizarre angles and bizarre narrative you know whether it's rain and unstable conditions uh you know uh, or just some amazing speed and performance if you think of mark marquez let's talk about him for a moment because not only do we have his injury issues to talk about but then also some of the races we've seen from him he is like you pointed out earlier the rider to have won the most Grand Prix at the track with three victories, five pole positions. Uh, you know, if you remember his mad dash back through the pack, um, which and the ire of several of his peers. Um, there's also the the clash with Valentino Rossi in 2015, which largely kicked off the uh, uh, trademarked most memorable spat in motorcycle racing history. Um, and then, you know, there are other things as well that, things just weird stuff pop up if we remember jack miller on the grid a couple of years ago i think it was 19 actually the last time we were there uh argentina just has this uh way of throwing up surprises even though it is a ball lake for everybody to get to and you know i think many teams and riders would be happy if 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 it kind of the event was skipped on the calendar yeah the, well the, i mean the track layout itself is absolutely fantastic um uh Jano Zavelli of uh, i think he's uh dromo the, is the name of his company yes. which which actually does the they works the, on silverstone as well yeah exactly i mean uh he, he took the track and he sort of he wanted to make it as fast as possible he was actually slightly disappointed to uh, make it not quite as fast as uh, to, uh, as philip island uh, so it's a really fast and it's a really flowing layout and there's some really 
one of the nice things about it is there's some really there, there, there's several places where you can where you can overtake. Um, so it offers lots of chances of overtakes. Uh, there, there's also the last section as well, which is really good for it. Um, uh, the, it you know, for a last minute attack, there's a couple of places where you can sort of launch over an attack and then make it a counter attack just before you come across the line. Uh, so it make it, it provides fantastic racing. Um, but the location, the the the, the track conditions, quite often the track is very very dusty and dirty. Uh, I think was it 2015 that we had compulsory pit stops because. Um, the the first year that Michelin were there, uh, Scott Redding's uh, uh, tire yeah. sort of popped or, or, or sort of delaminated more or less. Um, because again, because it's such a high speed track, the same thing that we saw in Brit with uh, Bridgestone in 2013 at Phillip Island after the track was resurfaced, they were going so fast around there that it was getting loads and loads of heat into the tires. Um, obviously, Michelin have got lots of uh, experience now with this. Uh, with their tire, with the track, so they they know what to expect from it. So that there shouldn't be any issues there um, uh, this year. But there's just so many sort of wild cards. I think a lot of it is again just because the track doesn't get used very much, and so we turn up and it's very dusty and it's very dirty, and uh, it takes a little while for everyone to get into it. And then as soon as you throw in. Uh, any sort of odd weather, if it starts raining or anything like that, then uh, everything sort of goes, uh, f- falls apart and, and becomes completely chaotic. You think the riders and teams would be used to dealing with dirty tracks now after going to LaSalle for round one, then having, you know, the experience of Mandalika for round two. And, you know, next is going to be Austin, where they've done some resurfacing work, but the back straight was kind of like a set of whoops on a, on a supercross track. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenging start to the calendar with these four events. Well, yeah, I mean, I, have, I do keep saying that, you know, these four races don't really mean anything. Uh, uh, sure, the points count, uh, but you can't actually draw any conclusions from them because it's, it, it's also very random. There are so many sort of strange factors. I think... Um, uh, Qatar did a good job of cleaning the track, quite honestly, because normally what you see is when you go offline, it looks like someone's blown an engine and there's a, and there's a trail of dust coming off the back of the uh, the bike on the straight. That wasn't happening. It all looked very clean, and and the way that the riders were riding, it looked also like they had options. You know, they had possible choices. They had options for choosing different lines through through the races. Um, uh, Mandalika was uh, a, uh, well a bit of a shit show to be perfectly frank um, Argentina we have no idea whether they've cleaned the track how clean it's going to be how dusty it's going to be whatever uh, Austin uh, yes it's been resurfaced unfortunately I think the NASCAR truck series was racing there I have again no idea what they've done to the uh, to the back straight to see if they've sort of fixed that because I think they were fixing mostly from about turn ten to turn eleven the hairpin. I'm not sure if they actually did the uh, the, the the back straight as well. Um, Do you know the results on the NASCAR track uh, truck race? Though? I'm I'm amazed that I actually know that uh, there that there is a. <laughs> <laughs> but there is actually a series of, uh, I mean, you know, you know how I feel about car racing. So uh, uh, truck racing is just an even more ex- obscure uh, a branch of car racing. So That's why I felt I had to ask. <laughs> but to be honest, I am more interested. I would be more interested in watching trucks race than cars, I think. <laughs> well, a couple of extra wheels, perhaps, in some categories. <laughs> 
What um, coming back to Termas, uh, any kind of favorite memories or moments that we've seen from you know that Grand Prix in recent years? I, I seem to remember Andrea Nianoni putting a self-destruct button on his Ducati career as a factory, as a factory Ducati rider when he decided to torpedo uh, Andrea uh, Andrea De Vizioso out of the running. Uh, yeah, that was um, uh, that was a classic because also because um, it was said. Um, uh, I think that was the year that they had signed Jorge Lorenzo and then it was between Dovizioso and Iannone as to who would get the second seat. And there'd been rumours in Qatar that Iannone was very close to a deal with um, uh, with Ducati. And then um, Iannone basically, I think, they, I seem to remember they were in second and third place. Um, and uh, Iannone tried to dive up the inside of Dovizioso and took them both out, took them both off of the podium. Uh, uh, and out of contention, and it was um, it was actually quite hilarious. I mean, it was it was it was one of those you know it was a typical Andrea Iannone moment um, where it, you know he just switches his brain off and and does something, and when it works, it's amazing. You know, when when Iannone was sort of on it, when he got things to work, he was absolutely fantastic. And then then he'd pull something like that, and then you'd realise, oh yeah, no. Uh, and that was definitely the, the that was definitely I think the weekend which uh, clinched the ride for Andrea Dovizioso. Uh, Jack Miller on the grid. Um, what was he like five rows ahead of everyone else, uh, starting from pole position? <laughs> that was another a real favourite moment, just because it was so bizarre. It was so odd. Um, if I remember correctly, everyone had been given a, or the, everyone had been, everyone else. I think Jack went out on slicks and everyone else had gone out on wets, realised that wets weren't going to work. So they'd come into, uh, so they'd come into the pits. Whereupon they have to start at the back of the grid. But yeah. how can everybody start exactly, at the back of the grid? Exactly, exactly. But literally everyone except for Jack Miller was going to be started from the from uh, from the back of the grid, which would have put them all exactly <laughs> uh, back in exactly the same position. Uh, so they sort of had a little conflab and moved them all back and put um, uh, put them all to the very back of the grid. I think was that also the race where um, Mark Marcus was forced to start from pit lane. Um, because I start the bike, yeah, because he couldn't start the bike, and then he sort yeah. of like you know uh, 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 pushed it off the grid, and or he was maneuvering around and got it started, and all sorts, and uh, he was had to start from pit lane, and and was given a ride through, and then uh, in a demonstration of some of the most remarkable riding, because it was sketchy conditions, and it, it was just fantastic riding. It was two, at one point, I think it was three seconds a lap faster than everyone else, uh, but he was also using everyone else's basically sort of you know like a berm he was um <laughs> he, he was literally yeah. bumping people out of his way um uh, alicia spargaro alicia spargaro yeah. valentino rossi yeah exactly yes yeah yeah um so yes that was that was quite the thing but that uh, that image of, of jack miller sitting on pole position and then looking over his shoulder back sort of you know five grid positions or five grid rows to see where the rest of the the riders are that is um uh, that that's definitely sort of uh, uh, burned into my uh, in, into my imagination. It's such a fantastic shot. It's uh, there was also the the occasion when Carl Crutchlow won because that was the moment of madness by Mark, and I think the contact he had with Rossi, which of course is post two thousand and fifteen, and all of the Sepang, Assen, and Termas furor that basically that just stopped the rivalry between those two. 
you know, there was the, the, the press conference where Cal Crutchlow basically sat there and said, where is the media? Yeah. You know, where is the press for the press conference? Because everybody else was trying to run around to see, you know, what kind of uh, latest verbal volley was going on from, from the Yamaha camp towards Mark Marcus's direction. But, you know, it was it was, it was chaotic times. Um, I want to go back to your point, the, the contract battle of the Andreas, of course, which was won by Davizioso. I know you're a little bit of a fanboy of, um, you know, Andrea Noni, Dave, and I, I can't get on board with it. I know you, you've, I think before you've cited even data analysis to show or somebody told you secondhand, you know, that, uh, what Inoni was doing on the bike was superlative, second to none. But um, I, I just have to associate like brain power and a certain degree of intelligence with the definition of a great motorcycle racer. Well, I just don't think Andrea really had that. No, no I completely agree. But what I mean, he's just in terms of raw talent. I think he was one of the most talented riders we've seen on the grid for a long time. But he, he just could never put everything together um, simply because he didn't have the intelligence to sort of like figure stuff out. Uh, you know, he couldn't figure out how to put a season together. He couldn't figure out when, you know, he, his mistakes were extremely, um, uh, were extremely boneheaded. I think if you look, for example, at the mistakes which Mark Marquez makes, leaving aside the last, well, basically since 2020, since he busted his arm, uh, but up until then, the mistakes which Marquez made were all, they all served a purpose. They were all um, as a result of certain actions or because he was trying to achieve a particular goal. Um, they were all sort of quite calculated. They were all the results of calculated risks gone wrong. There was a method to the madness. There was absolute method to the madness. But with Andre and Iannone, it was mostly madness and very little method. <laughs> It's uh, our colleague, uh, Matt Oxley, yeah, I think he wrote and said on more than one occasion that, you know, it was good to have that villain figure in MotoGP. Uh, that was one role that Andrea only seemed to serve quite well, whether it was with certain other riders on the track or even the public or certainly the media. Uh, he didn't he didn't exactly go down well with us in terms of popularity. Do you reckon there's a rider in the current field, Dave, that could, you know, assume that mantle or is, is it all just too friendly and nice uh it, it, it that's a very good question and it all does seem a little bit too friendly and nice there isn't really a um there isn't really you know a real sort of hatred between two people obviously there was the little spat between jack miller and fabio quartararo uh about passing moves but i mean it, again it's all it's all quite tame it's not very um uh, it, it's not... There's no spikiness. No, exactly. And I think also because, I mean, previously we had villains because Valentino Rossi understood that if you have a hero narrative, you have to have a villain. Um, so he he cast Max Biaggi and Seto now and Jorge Lorenzo and Mar Marquez as villains um, and Casey Stoner. So there was... Uh, I, I mean, I think Mark Marcus is the one rider with whom he has actual real hatred because I saw a an interview with um, Rossi recently, uh, I just saw in passing that basically uh, with an Italian newspaper, I think, ahead of the uh, 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 of his first car racing uh, events, he was basically saying, you know, he'd reconciled with the others. You know, he he he, he was in touch with Casey Stoner. You know, they were the sort of you know. 
uh, messaging backwards and forth. So they were, they were in touch with him, you know, and he was he was on perfectly friendly terms with Jorge Lorenzo. Uh, so that really only leaves uh, Mark Marquez on his uh, enemies list. But he had he, he understood that to uh, generate the interest and also as a form of motivation is to create an enemy, is to create uh, a, a rival, someone uh, someone to hate. Uh, and I don't think I don't think that happens. I think also there. There isn't really the way. I mean, living in a post-alien environment, if you like, where there aren't three or four riders, where there are you know six, seven, eight, nine riders, it's much more difficult to create sort of uh, uh, rivalries between two riders. If those, I mean, you know, if there's a rivalry between two riders who are currently battling for thirteenth place it's not going to capture the public imagination the, the rivalry has to be amongst the the the, the, the sort of the, the top three or four riders well i think there's also this very feverish blame culture at the moment perhaps that stops athletes from necessarily speaking their mind i'm i'm pretty sure that there are MotoGP riders that cannot stand each other or the sight of one another or you know have certain dead set opinions on the conduct of their peers racing attitude or endeavors but then actually coming out and saying something about it is a different thing i mean i'm, I'm feeling quite jet lagged at the moment because i've just got back from you know the the latest round of ama supercross um, and it was actually quite i don't want to say refreshing but it was different to watch the racers coming off the track and blatantly ignore each other uh, as they as they kind of peeled off you know into back going back to the paddock a scene in MXGP these days is where, you know, the winner will come across the finish line and then often wait and there's a good handshake and a fist bump or whatever else between the, the first three or four riders across the line. It's all very congenial and very polite. Um, so to see that in Supercross was, was actually a reminder that, you know, these guys are competing against each other. There are emotions and there are certain attitudes that really, you know, uh, kick some narratives into overdrive sometimes. But, I mean, I suppose... Supercross is the is the closest motorcycle racing has to a contact sport, uh, just because of the, the you know the tightness of the track and they. Whenever I watch bits and bobs of Supercross, it's always sort of people slamming into each other and bumping each other out of the way, and you don't sort of see that. The the passes in MXGP are much cleaner because the tracks are much bigger. There's much more space and they're not as tight. So I wonder if that also plays a uh, plays a role. I mean, once you have sort of have someone slag the, uh, slam their foot peg into your leg for the fourth time uh, uh, on a weekend, you're going to start to get quite irritated by them. So I, I can imagine that must, uh, that must play a factor. But I think also I think it is – races and, and athletes have to understand the narrative. Um, I mean, you see the, the, the great athletes of the sport understand that they have to create a narrative, that you have to have this hero and villain story. Um, and we don't really have that. Even Jorge Lorenzo understood that. He knew you had to, you know, there was that there were roles to be played and, and they would fall into these roles um, because they understood, understood that they could benefit for, uh, from that. And the only person really sort of, you know, trying that kind of manipulation at the moment is Mark Marquez. Um, and he sort of understands that, you know, you can put pressure on people by saying things and trying all of these uh, little mind games. And I, I think we saw it a little bit with Fabio Quattararo and I think um, uh, I think she won Mia last uh, last year when Mia was saying well he's got to win now you know it's up to him you know he he has to go out and win and and these sort of things I, I think we might start to see a little bit as some of the rivalries 
settle in. But I think it's um, first they need to find their find their sort of place in the sport. I think also there there's been such a shake up in the sport in the past couple of years that there, there are very few sort of defined roles. And once the defined roles start to appear once once riders start to realize what their 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 role could be in the sport then they will start to see if they can exploit that somehow well Matt markers as well is is so well established as like the ultimate kind of racer really in the last 10 to 15 years and the advantage that has is that he can always cherry pick his targets mm. you know i think you can see a fabio quattro in 2019 um fabio is a rider that's very transparent with his emotions of course highly dramatic uh, i mean if i was mark i'd be looking thinking I, I know which buttons to push there i know how to maybe rattle him and of course quattro turned that around you know for his championship year where he seemed much more resourceful mentally to be able to deal with various scenarios i mean just look at the way as we've mentioned before that yamaha imploded uh, and he was able to keep on the outskirts of that and bring home the championship for them and then, you know, Juan Mir as well, you know, with the finger and the pressure of everyone saying the Suzuki hasn't improved and, you know, you're not going to win a race. There seemed like a little black cloud hovering over him. Um, you know, it, it seemed like Juan Mir, bad qualifying, went together to form a large phrase for large parts of last season. And I think the the rider now that might be struggling um, and, you know, if you are eyeing the championship, you may be looking at Pekka Bangnaya thinking this guy is supposed to be the favorite for the title, but he hasn't got his bike settled yet. He's complaining about having to develop the Ducati. Maybe there are questions about his mental space or his positioning at the moment to be able to be the front runner in MotoGP. So, uh, you know, it's a shame really that Mark isn't in a uh, prime condition at the moment to be able to, you know, explore some of that. I'd like to see more gamesmanship in MotoGP. So do I. I think it's part of it. You know, like I, I, I keep saying motorcycle racing, you know, 90, 90% of it, play, uh, uh, it takes place between the ears of the riders. And so anything you can do in that, if you can beat riders off track, then you've already got them. Uh, you've already got an advantage once you actually come on track. And th that's what sort of great champions of every stripe uh have managed to do um and again it was like you say fabi quattararo was a fantastic example uh, last year he was so stable and so calm and so collected throughout uh, that he could manage to sort of uh, resist that but yeah i again i think we will start to see a little bit more of that once the once the championship starts to get established again yeah pekka banya is a really good example he's coming into this with one point from two races which is uh, not fantastic even though we still have 19 races or you know the full 2019 season uh, still to go that's a lot of points um but one point from uh, from two races is not great um things are not off to uh, a fantastic start we really have to see how how things come together uh, the one thing is i think the ducati will suit the 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 new Ducati will suit the, the the track a little bit better. Um, this track is a very fast and flowing track, so I think that that is going to it. it the, the new Ducati is much better at those sort of circuits than than uh, previous iterations of it have been. Well, we hope we haven't put our foot pegs into your ear holes, uh, dear listener, for this podcast so far. We'll be back after this small message where we're going to talk about Michelin's, uh, Mark Marquez, of course, his latest injury and how that's going, some predictions and more Fantasy League business before we round things off ahead of the Grand Prix of Argentina. 
Renthal Street ultralight rear sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Adam Weeder. I'm joined by David Emmett. We're down four down to two this week as you've been listening so far, but we've got a couple more subjects just to dip into before round three of 2002 MotoGP. Dave, uh, Mark Marquez has Honda provided an update just of this morning as we were recording. Um, you know, his condition when it comes to the repercussions of his concussion after the crash in Indonesia, it seems things are heading in a positive direction. Do you think, I mean, would you put a coin down that we might even see him for Austin where he can continue his impressive run of results? Uh, I think if MotoGP was going to any circuit other than Austin, then I would say he might take a pass. But it's Austin. You know, he's won there so many times. Um, he's so good around that circuit. Uh, he... he it's a place where he knows he can score a lot of points. So if he wants to get, if he wants to have any chance at a, a championship for the rest of the season, then he needs to be there and he needs to maximise maximize his points all. Um, so I would, if I had to guess, I would say, oh yeah, he's definitely going to be at Austin. But even that is uh, a little bit... I mean, we won't really know until next week. Uh, but then Marcus himself did say that like, he had this recurrence of, of diplopia, this uh, double vision, uh, after he banged his head so badly at Mandalika. Uh, but he did say you know, it, it wasn't anywhere near as bad as the first time round after, um, uh, after the enduro training crash in, I think, October last year. Uh, so that was already quite positive, and the, the the press release itself was also very very positive. Um, the, the the language in it was all sort of you know the uh, the, the recovery is progressing very very well, and uh, they're going to stick to this conservative treatment, which is basically, as I understand it, mostly just sort of eye exercises and working with eye patches and that sort of thing to uh, to to get the eye moving and get the eye sort of uh, focused again. Um, so yeah, I, I think the one downside for Marcus here is, um, while he's suffering this issue, he can't train on a bike and what he really needed was more time on a bike because this was, this is basically what he said when he came back at the Sepang test, um, his shoulder was still hurting because he hadn't had time to, you know, be on the bike to, uh, to, to train on a bike, uh, and he needed to spend more time, you know, on, on a motorcycle on, you know, running flat track motocross, uh, uh, round circuits and all the rest of it to build the strength in his shoulder to, uh, to 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 be able to challenge it. So I think this this I think is is the biggest his basic biggest disadvantage. That's leaving aside the question of what happens if he falls off again, uh, because to me that that seems like a you know a, a big deal. Yeah, because I mean, he, I think he did two track days with the, the production version of the RCV uh, before starting the season, before giving himself the green light to come back. Um, now, what do you do? I mean, if you're Alberto Bouge and your Honda as well, do you think, you know, there are 18 races left? 
mathematically, of course, he's still in championship contention. The first two winners of the first two Grand Prix are hardly riders that you would have pegged before the season to be in the in the championship hunt, certainly based on 2021 form of Enea Bastini and Miguel Oliveira. So it's not like we've seen complete domination by Fabio Quattararo or, or Pekka Bagnaia or Jack Miller, you know, championship favourites. So, there, you know, Mark is still, you would say, in this. If he misses Indonesia and he misses Argentina and comes back to Austin, anything like the capacity that we know. But then again, as Honda, do you say, do we completely make sure, do we go with this or do we give him more time? I mean, there's got to be a point where he does say, guys, I'm fine, I'm going to go back at it. I think um, it's hard to say because Marquez himself has been saying uh, it's, you know, everything is fine or and I'm going to be much more careful and you've only got one body and I've learned to accept, you know, to, to take time, as much time as I need to recover before I come back to racing again. Uh, and yet he absolutely threw himself off that bike i mean it was the the, the crash itself at mandalika was um there was nothing he could do about it the rear let go well the only thing he could have done about it was not go into that corner quite so fast um <laughs> so yeah it was uh, it it was a natural result of of the way that he was riding he was riding very very aggressively i, I was i wrote a piece about him last night um, and I'd, for, to do that, I went back and watched a lot of the sessions and watched a lot of the things that he was doing. He's running very aggressively. Um, that sort of thing makes you quite concerned that if he could keeps doing that, he's going to do it. Himself, you know, he, he, he's going to uh, he's going to hurt himself again. But that would also make him more aggressive in terms of you know coming back and racing. You know, trying to race early. Uh, so yeah, it's. But do you, Dave? Do you think you know the? I mean, the former Polis Bargaro is that more? Give does that give Honda more options? I mean, it's not they're not just having to put all their eggs in Mark Marcus's basket. They can also maybe look at Paul. Uh, you, yes, but Paul has not yet proved that he can put together a campaign. Obviously, the bike is is massively improved, and all of the Hondas were doing badly at uh, at Mandalika. Um, uh, Polos looked really, really solid, but you know he hasn't proven uh, that he can put together a a, a campaign um, in MotoGP at least. So it's an unknown quantity. It's too early in the season to be able to say that. Um, like you say, Mark Marcus is still the best bet at the moment. The championship leader has thirty points. Thirty points is um. Uh, it, easy to overcome, especially for Marquez, who I think has eleven. Uh, so there's only a twenty-nine. That's only sorry. There's only a nineteen-point uh, deficit, and the maximum he he would end up being is forty-four points. Forty-four points with nineteen races is still. You know, it's an average of what two and a half points, something like that, per race. That means having to finish two or three positions ahead of the uh, 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 of the championship of, uh, of a potential championship leader for for the rest of the season. Yeah, it'll be eighteen races after after this weekend. But of yes. course, you, like you say, it's not it's not an insurmountable amount, really. 
No, exactly. There's still so much. There's still so much to put, to, to play for. Again, yeah. Also, we're going to uh, Kimi Ring. You know, we're going to another new circuit in in July in in the middle of the summer to go to Finland. Um, and there's some of Marcus's favorite tracks coming up. You know, like Jerez, where he's where he's usually been strong. Um, yeah, Saxon Ring. Yes. Yeah, Saxon Ring, um, the, uh, Philip Island. He's been. He, he's usually been strong. There's lots of tracks. Uh, uh, there's lots of tracks where he he should be quite strong. He should be capable of winning. So um, yeah, I, I think it's way too early to be writing him off. Uh, apart from the fact that he keeps, you know, hurting himself, and he's got to stop hurting himself. Hey, Dave, HRC are going to be down to one rider in Termas, uh, you know, with pole. But then, you know. It, is there also a bit of a microscope on how the Hondas are going to be handling with the Michelins after Mandalika, uh, Alberto Puig, you know, and the rest of the, the the team were particularly scathing of the the performance of the French rubber. So I think there's going to be people watching out just to see if there's a continuation of those those kind of those problems. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of a there's been a bit of a back and forth between uh, Alberto Puig and Piero Taramasso and uh, well, I mean, stoked obviously by journalists because that's what they do. <laughs> never, um, never. Um, but yeah, I mean, there there was some irritation in, at Honda at the fact that Michelin bought these uh, this older construction tire to Mandalika, um, you know, tires based on a design which was four or five years old, uh, which, you know, it worked, it kept the tires cool, but it, it was also much more difficult to make it work. Um, and Paul was obviously livid because he'd come out of the test thinking, oh, I've got this, this is a race I can win. And um, then he turns up and he can't get the tire to work at all. So, yeah, there's there's been sort of like back and forth uh, about that with... I mean, it's all been really quite petty, mostly. I don't think that's going to be an issue at... Um, uh, I don't think it's going to be an issue with Argentina because, as I say, there's so much, they, they have so much data from the track. They know what the track is like. Um, I think Honda are going to have to work to make their bike work at the track, but there's no reason why it can't. You know, it, it the bike has a lot more rear grip and lacks a bit of front uh, front end. Um, the the track is pretty good uh, for you know a, a, a bike with a lot of rear end grip. Um, it, it's favoured the Yamaha, uh, which is also a bike which has a lot of sort of traction. So I I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, Dave, that was actually kind of one of the questions we had in um, from at DJ Purchase. Um, somebody called Sean Elkin says, any tire shenanigans happening this round? Impossible to predict, of course, but <laughs> you'd think you'd think not. No, I mean, uh, on paper, it doesn't look like there will be, nor is there any reason to think that there, that there should be. There's no reason for them to actually do anything uh, idiotic. Um, you know, Michelin... They know which tires work there. They've got lots of data. They understand how it works there. All the teams know have lots of data from the track as well. Even though we haven't been there since 2019, um, it is a, a track that they understand. They you know they, they know how to make the bikes go around that track quite fast. So it, it shouldn't be any more of a challenge than than, than normal. It's um, uh, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard to make the the tires you know last 
because it is a track which is very hard on tyres because of the high speeds involved. So you can't just go out and sort of just hammer it and and hope to get home quickly. You do have to actually manage the tyre um, towards the second half of the race. You can't let it overheat. Uh, if you get be, if you get stuck behind riders, you are going to uh, have problems with the front tyre overheating and, and, and temperatures going up. Um, you can't just sort of whack the throttle and and burn the thing up and uh, expect to go uh, to get home. You do have to be a little bit gentle with your throttle uh, and manage it. So, I mean, will there be a tar shenanigans? Yes, but just the normal tar shenanigans we see week in, week out. Uh, another question I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this one. Johnny Rao says, will you be ordering the steak, lads? And I know <laughs> your answer to this, Dave. Well, exactly. I, don't, I mean, the last time I had a steak was 1983, probably. So <laughs> <laughs> I hope it was a good one. I have got, that, no, that I, have, I, have, I have no memory of it whatsoever. So um, uh, uh, that's how much I've missed. I've missed eating meat in all those years. Um, uh, also, you I know, can speak. I speak on behalf of our colleague Neil Morrison, who will probably be doing two a night. Uh, <laughs> you know. So yeah, I'm um, Johnny. I, Neil will be getting in the steaks. Don't worry. Yes, indeed. Actually, it's a it is a fantastic place for barbecue, which is what um, uh, I think uh, Steve would have uh, quite liked to go because they do have these massive open fire, you know, these these mass- massive open fire pits where they're uh, grilling uh, basically, you know, half of a half of a cow on top of it, um, and it it certainly looks impressive. I'll stick to the uh, large burgers in Austin. That'll, that will be uh, a little bit more up my alley. But uh, Dave, let's move on to predictions. Um, you know, it seems to be a harder and harder thing to do now uh, in MotoGP. You really have to get into the meat and bones of FP2 before you've got any idea of who's going to be reasonably quick. Uh, but, you know, is there any rider or team, any bike that you're particularly pulling towards for this Grand Prix? For me, I'm going to have to say the combination of those... Uh, 14 corners, you know, five kilometer track layout, you know, like you said, high speeds, um, being careful on the tires. Uh, uh, Joanne Mir is going to be my pick. I think he's actually going to pull through and um, really launch his title campaign. Uh, I think uh, Joanne Mir is a good shout. I think that I expect quite a lot from Suzuki's. Also, uh, Alex Rin seems to have found something as well. He seems to have found a little bit of maturity that was missing. I mean, we were talking about Andre Iannone before, and Alex Rins. I think Alex Rins is 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 smarter than Andrea Iannone, but he has some of the same sort of weaknesses that he uh, uh, sort of you know acts before he thinks and then uh, lives to regret it. Um, so I think Alex Rins could be one. But I also think this is a this is a Yamaha track. There have been Yamahas. Uh, on the podium, pretty much off the top of my head, pretty much every year uh, that we've uh, that, that we've been there. So I think also Fabio Quattararo is coming off a strong weekend in Mandalika. Um, I think the the, the Yamaha is going to be quite strong there. I expect to see uh, both Morbidelli and Quattararo at the front, uh, and I would not be at all surprised if we saw Quattararo versus Joan uh, Mir at the end of the race. And I think that this is also uh, we were speaking about rivalries earlier. I think this is the rivalry which we might get to see later on because they're both uh, they're both quite smart um young men juan mir especially has that kind of intelligence he also knows we saw last year that he knew how to 
apply pressure when he when he needed to. I think we could we could start to see a couple of uh, comments from him trying to put pressure on who they think is going to be um, is going to be strong. But also the, the Ducatis have to have a good weekend this weekend. They really need to come through. I think it's going to. I think the track is going to suit the bike, um, or the bike is going to suit the track better. I think is perhaps the best way to see it. That uh, it it turns much better. It's very good on the. It's very good on, on or it's getting better on tire conservation. They seem to have ditched the front ride height device again. It's not really a track where the ride height device, the front ride height device, was going to make much of a difference anyway. Uh, so yeah, I think it's going to. I would keep a definitely keep an eye on the Ducasses. You know, we've seen in the past that they can be strong there. Um, there is the back straight where speed matters, but it's not a huge thing. You know, again, we're not doing 360. Uh, we're doing, I think, three just over 300 to 300 Ks again. Um, so, yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see it, how they manage tyres. Tyre preservation is going to be really the, 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 the biggest thing here. And Pekka Banyaya really, really needs to start scoring some points. Yeah, that was one of his main attributes in his MX, uh, MX2, Motor 2 winning year. So, you know, Peko certainly has the skill for conservation. It'll be curious to see how much the Ducatis have taken a step back to a 2021 kind of setup or they've advanced their current uh, configuration of the new motorcycle. That will be, I think, a question we'll have for the likes of Jack Miller and also Peko Renaya once the riders start talking to us on Thursday. But until then, um, whether you agree with our predictions or not, uh, you, of course, have a chance to join us in the Paddock Pass Podcast Fantasy League. Just go into the MotoGP game itself, select your team, and then do a search for the league. And we're down as Paddock Pass Podcast Knowles. Uh, enter your team there. Join us. I think there's over 200 of us there now. We just got confirmation this week that Renthor are going to be giving away um, a special prize package for the person at the end of the season with the most points and who emerges uh, to the top. Um, I, I, well, I mean, I have a Honda one two five to buzz around the city. I don't actually have a motorcycle, so if I win, um, which is looking quite likely at the moment, I have to say. But as you keep pointing out, Dave, there's lots of races to go. Then I'm not really going to have anywhere to put my new bars. No, well, also I really need to go and fix my team because at the moment my main rider is Mark Marquez, and as he's not even going to be there, then I think I think I can safely replace him with someone else. So um, uh, I should have to have a very careful think about who to put uh, put in his place. Um, but uh, yes, yes, yeah. I mean, it's a bit unfortunate that you are leading. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Thank I'll, you for the goodwill. Yeah, but, but yeah, come and join us. It's, a, it's some it's some good bench racing, and we like to sort of swap some views on social media, and of course, uh, chart who's looking good through the Grand Prix from FP1 up until the point where you can select your riders to centre in Q1. That's it from us this week. Uh, hopefully we'll be back with some more of, a, of the usual crew. Uh, we certainly will be talking with Neil once he gets to Argentina on the Paddock Pass podcast note show. So join us there on Patreon. And until then, we will be back with another show uh, right before Austin. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. That looks better than it sounded.